welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Going to start out with the Supremes and then hop around from excellent regulatory interpretation holdings to not so excellent asylum and particular social group decisions. Trying to keep it interesting and positive for you guys. Also, and I'm straight stealing this from the brilliant Helen Parsonage, but it looks like the First Circuit held this week in the sentence enhancement context, United States v. Abdul Aziz, that Massachusetts marijuana doesn't match the definition of marijuana under federal law because the feds exclude hemp from the definition, and at least at the time of the conviction here, Massachusetts did not. Similar decisions have been reached in other circuits, not to mention the 8th Circuit's big decision in Gonzales v. Wilkinson with Florida marijuana, discussed on episode 46 of the podcast. So check out all those decisions, and thank you, Helen. On to the cases. Starting off with Garland v. Dye, published by the Supreme Court on June 1st, 2021. The Supreme Court speaks unanimously again to overturn the Ninth Circuit, this time on adverse credibility. Justice Gorsuch authored the opinion. And the case is actually about two individuals. The first, Mr. Alcaraz Enriquez, applied for asylum but had a conviction for inflicting corporal injury upon a cohabitant in California. The probation report of the incident indicated that he locked up, beat, raped, and threatened to murder his girlfriend many years ago. In immigration court a long time later, he, quote, admitted hitting his girlfriend, but not in the manner as described in the report, end quote. He had a letter from his mother corroborating his version of events. The immigration judge believed the probation report, but did not make an express adverse credibility finding against Mr. Alcaraz Enriquez. BIA affirmed. On appeal, the Ninth Circuit reversed, relying on its precedent that, quote, where the BIA does not make an explicit adverse credibility finding, the court must assume that the non-citizen's factual contentions are true, end quote. Similar with Mr. Dai. 
He applied for asylum based on his alleged violation of China's then-one-child policy with his wife, who he claimed Chinese authorities forced to have an abortion when she was pregnant with the couple's second child. He said he wanted asylum in part so he could bring his wife and his child to the U.S., but he also testified, after he, quote, hesitated at some length, end quote, that in fact his wife and child had once come to the U.S. and then voluntarily returned to China to go to school and work. The IJ denied asylum, finding that Mr. Dai's story was not persuasive, but he didn't make an express adverse credibility finding. The BIA affirmed, and the Ninth Circuit remanded for the same reason. But in Mr. Dai's case, 12 Ninth Circuit judges wanted to go and bonk on the issue, but the full Ninth Circuit refused to do so. The case made its way to the Supreme Court here. And the Supreme Court unanimously overturned the Ninth Circuit's credibility rule. Quote, so long as the record contains contrary evidence of a kind and quality that a reasonable fact-finder could find sufficient, a reviewing court may not overturn the agency's factual determination, end quote. An IJ is, quote, free to credit part of a witness's testimony without necessarily accepting it all, end quote. But remember, practitioners, the IJ's rejection must still have a basis in the record. It just needs to be, quote, reasonable, end quote. At the end of the day, the Supreme Court does not believe the Ninth Circuit's, quote, deemed true or credible rule, end quote, is supported by the INA, and reminds us that credibility does not necessarily equate to persuasiveness, which is also required under the INA after the Real ID Act. Even less than fully not credible testimony might not be persuasive, and might prevent a non-citizen from succeeding, at least when the non-citizen has the burden, as is the case when it comes to immigration relief. The two cases were therefore sent back for further analysis. Of course, I've got some more. As a lot of people are saying on the immigration Facebook groups, bad facts make bad law. Petition for reviews certainly just became more difficult, at least in the Ninth Circuit. And lots of quotes in this one that'll make it easier for circuits to affirm the BIA on any factual matter if they want to. But if I'm being honest, those quotes already kind of exist in every circuit anyway. One important point to remember, though. As the Supreme Court points out, the INA does in fact provide for a, quote, presumption of credibility, end quote, on appeal from an IJ to the BIA in certain matters where an IJ does not make an express adverse credibility finding. So, practitioners, and notwithstanding this decision, it may indeed be per se reversible error for the BIA to rely upon this Supreme Court decision, because this decision is solely about adverse credibility for petitions for review. The Supreme Court does not conclusively address what the BIA must do to rebut the presumption of credibility where an IJ does not make an adverse credibility finding, saying that the BIA must explain itself in a, quote, reasonably discernible, end quote, fashion and I can only imagine that it requires some analysis. Here, the Supreme Court sent it back to the Ninth Circuit to expressly delineate the, quote, full application, end quote, of the presumption of credibility standard. So keep that in mind. And perhaps for this reason, or not, on the heels of this Supreme Court remand to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit itself decided to go and bonk four days later on an unpublished adverse credibility affirmance titled Alam v. Barr. 
so I can only imagine that the en banc judges in the Ninth Circuit intend to issue a favorable ruling on adverse credibility in the coming months, possibly in line with the dissenting opinion in the original unpublished Alam case. Reading the tea leaves as us peasants must do. And that is Garland v. Dye. Next is Garcia de Leon v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on June 4, 2021. Administrative closure case, everyone. Mr. Garcia de Leon was in removal proceedings and sought administrative closure because, while he was in proceedings, he married a U.S. citizen who filed a Form I-130 petition for his benefit with USCIS. Because Mr. Garcia de Leon entered the United States from Mexico without authorization, the 1997 changes to immigration law prevent him from adjusting to LPR status based on that approved petition. Instead, Mr. Garcia de Leon must depart the United States and try to come back in with an immigrant visa. But the second he leaves the U.S., he'll be subject to a 10-year bar due to his unlawful presence. Unless USCIS grants him a provisional unlawful presence waiver but USCIS can't grant him a waiver unless his removal proceedings are administratively closed. So here we are. Jeff Sessions, of course, knew all of that when he took away administrative closure in matter of Castro-Tum. The immigration judge denied Mr. Garcia de Leon a continuance, denied his motion to administratively close proceedings to await approval of the I-130 petition, and denied the only form of relief that would let him remain in the United States, non-LPR cancellation of removal. Mr. Garcia de Leon appealed to the BIA, and during appeal, USCIS approved the I-130 petition. The BIA affirmed the IJ, and relied upon matter of Castro-Tum to hold that the immigration judge lacked authority to administratively close proceedings. On petition for review, the Sixth Circuit joined the Seventh, Third, and Fourth Circuit to hold that immigration judges have authority to administratively close cases. And as I've mentioned before, that Seventh Circuit decision is authored by now Justice Amy Comey Barrett. But wait, Kevin, I thought you said on episode 31 of the podcast in Hernandez Serrano v. Barr that the Sixth Circuit deferred to matter of Castro-Tum. And indeed, I did say that. Thanks for calling me out like that in front of everyone, Kevin. Class act. So actually, the Sixth Circuit didn't totally disagree with Matter of Castro-Tum or Hernandez-Serrano, because to begin with, a panel can't overturn another panel. This decision here is more narrow than those other circuit decisions or Hernandez-Serrano. See, 8 CFR section 212.7E4-III, a regulation that only applies to DHS and not immigration judges, expressly requires that a non-citizen in removal proceedings obtain administrative closure of their case before applying for a provisional unlawful presence waiver. So in those narrow circumstances, which are the circumstances at issue in this case, the Attorney General can't take away administrative closure, as he apparently tried to do in a footnote in matter of Castro-Tum. So, while the Sixth Circuit is bound by its holding that the regulations don't provide IJs with, quote, general authority to administratively close cases, end quote, it remains the case that IJs have the authority to do so when, quote, appropriate and necessary, end quote. An adjudication of a provisional unlawful presence waiver is such a case. 
Indeed, it would appear that in the Sixth Circuit, the following is the standard. Administrative closure is available, quote, when a pending removal proceeding would prevent a non-citizen from obtaining immigration status, and thus when administrative closure was appropriate and necessary for the disposition of the case, end quote. And, of course, where doing so will not, in practice, quote, lead to non-adjudication of immigration cases, end quote. Argue at Sixth Circuit Practitioners. Congrats to David E. Funk for Petitioner, and Ayla via Cynthia M. Nunez for an apparently excellent and cited amicus brief. Our annual fees at work. One more thing. As I touched upon, and in case you don't know, the regulations are split into two parts and are largely, but not entirely, duplicative. The first half of the regulations apply only to DHS. Those are the regulations numbered in the hundreds. While the second half of the regulations in the thousands, those apply to the BIA and to the immigration judges. Important to remember, because some bad DHS regs don't apply to immigration judges. And in any event, it looks good when you cite to the proper regulation in court. And that is Garcia de Leon v. Garland. Next, we have Padilla Franco v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on June 2nd, 2021. This is a short asylum decision, as the Eighth Circuit decisions often are, no matter who wins. Thank you for your kindness, Eighth Circuit. Miss Padilla Franco's father entered into a deal for land in Honduras that went bad, and after her father was killed in an unrelated robbery, the men came after Miss Padilla Franco for the land. They threatened to kill her and tried to run her off the road while driving, and eventually she fled to Guatemala and then the United States. The immigration judge and the BIA denied her asylum, withholding, and convention against torture claims, and the Eighth Circuit affirmed. At the onset, the Eighth Circuit held that the BIA correctly reviewed the immigration judge's factual findings for clear error, and the IJ's legal conclusions de novo. It then concluded that the BIA properly affirmed the no-past-persecution finding because, quote, the emotional harm that resulted in nightmares and stress, end quote, suffered by Ms. Padilla-Franco in this case simply wasn't extreme enough. Plus, the Eighth Circuit didn't really see a nexus beyond simply a dispute over land. Then, the Eighth Circuit relied on the new 2020 amended regulations to hold that Ms. Padillo-Franco didn't have a well-founded fear of future persecution because she never attempted to relocate in Honduras, and now, under these new regulations, quote, regardless of whether an applicant has established persecution in the past, in cases in which the persecutor is a private actor, there shall be a presumption that internal relocation would be reasonable unless the applicant establishes by a preponderance of the evidence that it would be unreasonable to relocate, end quote. Wow, what a regulation. I could have sworn these 11th hour regulations were enjoined and therefore not yet in effect. And regardless, I remain a bit flummoxed why Attorney General Garland has yet to initiate the process to revoke them. Ms. Padillo-Franco, therefore, did not succeed in her case. But I'm still a bit confused about legal standards. Here, 
The Eighth Circuit held that under its recent precedent, quote, whether protected characteristics motivated any harm is a factual determination, end quote, that the BIA properly reviews for clear error rather than de novo. But in matter of ACAA, Attorney General Barr held that, quote, in conducting its review of an alien's asylum claim, the BIA must examine de novo whether the facts found by the immigration judge satisfy all of the statutory elements of asylum as a matter of law, end quote. The Eighth Circuit and the Attorney General's requirements seem to conflict a little bit. And honestly, I'm not sure who an immigration judge in the Eighth Circuit must follow. Practitioners would do well to highlight this apparent conflict, at least in the Eighth Circuit and where appropriate. Because, of course, we can't have a situation where the BIA is only reviewing de novo how the facts meet all of the elements of asylum law when an immigration judge grants relief, but not when an immigration judge denies relief. And that is Padilla Franco v. Garland. Moving on, we have Rubalcaba v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on June 2nd, 2021. This case is about sua sponte motions to reopen and the departure bar. Mr. Rubalcaba is from Mexico and first came to the United States at 14 years old. But he left, and when he tried to come back over 20 years ago, he was caught at the border and placed in exclusion proceedings before IRIRA got rid of the separate exclusion proceedings and made everything removal proceedings. Mr. Rubalcaba was excluded from the United States for not having valid documents, and he was physically sent back to Mexico. He returned unlawfully five months later in 1996, and he lived in the U.S. without incident until he himself tried to reopen his exclusion proceedings in 2016. And honestly, I'm not sure how you even have exclusion proceedings in 2016, but regardless, he intended to concede excludability and then adjust to lawful permanent resident status, based on an approved I-130 petition filed by his U.S. citizen father, with a now current priority date. Just as an aside, Mr. Rubalcaba's unlawful entry would totally preclude him from adjusting status under INA Section 245A. That was kind of the issue that we just discussed in that Sixth Circuit case. But Mr. Rubalcaba's father appears to have filed the I-130 petition before April 30th, 2001, thereby making Mr. Rubalcaba potentially eligible for INA Section 245I adjustment of status, which doesn't require a lawful entry. Mr. Rubalcaba waited all of this time to attempt to reopen and adjust status because it took like 23 years for the visa petition filed for a married Mexican son of a U.S. citizen to become current. Nuts. Anyway, lacking an express legal basis or argument for equitable tolling of the motion to reopen deadline, Mr. Rubalcaba requested that the immigration judge exercise her sua sponte authority to reopen proceedings. The IJ declined to do so because, remember, Mr. Rubalcaba was physically sent back to Mexico after his exclusion order in 1996, and under 8 CFR section 1003.23b1, quote, A motion to reopen or to reconsider shall not be made by or on behalf of a person who is the subject of removal, deportation, or exclusion proceedings subsequent to his or her departure from the United States, end quote. This is what's commonly known as the departure bar. Dun-dun-dun! 
The BIA affirmed the IJ, which makes sense because it held that the departure bar applies to sua sponte motions to reopen in its 2008 decision, matter of Armendariz Mendez. As Armendariz Mendez is the BIA interpreting its own regulations, our Kaiser deference applies, and as Justice Gorsuch made clear two years ago in Kaiser, that deference isn't the strongest. The Ninth Circuit here declined to defer to matter of Armendariz Mendez. And this is not completely surprising, because the Ninth Circuit refused to defer to Armendariz Mendez even before Kaiser in 2015, in its case, Tor v. Lynch, holding that the departure bar doesn't apply to timely filed regulatory motions to reopen, a holding that at least at the time, every other circuit to address the issue had similarly agreed with. So this decision here is extending Tor to sua sponte motions to reopen as well. And the Ninth Circuit's holding contradicts pre-Kaiser holdings out of the Second and Fifth Circuits, but agrees with a post-Kaiser Tenth Circuit decision from last year in Reyes Vargas v. Barr. Also, apparently the Third Circuit is unsure and a bit split pre- and post-Kaiser. Double gongja. So make arguments against the departure bar in your circuits, practitioners, including in the 2nd and 5th, based on these decisions and the Supreme Court's Kaiser decision. The Ninth Circuit reached its conclusion here for a few reasons. Mainly, it held that the departure bar only even potentially applies under the regulations to motions to reopen and reconsider, but technically, a sua sponte motion isn't a motion to reopen. It's just asking the immigration judge or the BIA to do what they already have authority to do on their own. Plus, limiting sua sponte reopening doesn't jive with the spirit of the regulations, which is, quote, entirely discretionary, end quote, and designed to provide relief for exceptional cases. So, Mr. Rubalcaba will receive an opportunity to prove that his case warrants sua sponte reopening. No easy task, but at least he now has the chance. Congratulations, Elsa Martinez, on the great win. Gotta talk about the new regs again, though. In a footnote, the Ninth Circuit notes that the current regulations, not in effect at the time of Mr. Rubalcaba's motion, likely nearly completely strip IJs of ever granting sua sponte motions to reopen. So again, unless the Biden administration agrees with the 11th hour regulations pushed through by the prior administration, I hope there's a plan to revoke at least some of them. And that is Rubalcaba v. Garland. Finally, we have Sanchez Castro v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on June 1st, 2021. This is an asylum case primarily about nexus. Ms. Sanchez Castro is from El Salvador and fled to the United States in 2012 with her family after she and her mother were extorted and threatened with rape and murder by MS-13. They pointed a gun at her and tried to kidnap her and stole the family's possessions. Police never helped, despite the family's pleas. According to Ms. Sanchez Castro, this happened because her father was working in the United States, and MS-13 therefore believed that the family had money, as family members working in the U.S. remit millions of dollars a year to their families in Latin America. 
Indeed, in some Central American countries, it's one of the primary sources of GDP. Ms. Sanchez-Castro claimed asylum and withholding of removal based on her asserted membership in the particular social group of, quote, nuclear family with a father abroad, end quote. And in this vein, her extended family left behind in El Salvador were afterwards extorted, threatened, and even raped by MS-13. The immigration judge refused to hear corroborating testimony from Ms. Sanchez-Castro's father because he wasn't physically in El Salvador when the events occurred while the mother and sister refused to testify because they feared being deported themselves if they showed up in court. The IJ denied asylum and the BIA affirmed, eventually, based on the Attorney General's decision in matter of LEA II. The Eleventh Circuit didn't really address that case, but affirmed the no-nexus finding. It noted that to satisfy the asylum nexus standard, quote, a reason is central if it is essential to the motivation of the persecutor, end quote. The 11th Circuit found that standard not met here because, as horrible as MS-13 is, the court agreed that Ms. Sanchez-Castro and her, quote, family members have been the victims of ordinary criminal activity, end quote. The court believed that the gang wanted money, and quote, engages in that kind of behavior indiscriminately. It wasn't about an animus against her father, as the court deemed necessary. As the court itself notes, this decision is in contrast to its own decision in Perez-Sanchez two years ago, where the individual was extorted because of his father's past connection to a cartel. Keep that in mind in the 11th Circuit with cases such as this. In fact, according to the court, the terrible conditions in El Salvador actually cut against Ms. Sanchez-Castro on Nexus, because it shows that MS-13 is targeting everyone, horrifically, rather than the Sanchez-Castro family, specifically. In so holding, the 11th Circuit expressly declined to conduct a nexus inquiry similar to the 4th Circuit's, quote, more lenient approach, end quote. Turning to Convention Against Torture Protection, which does not require a nexus showing, the 11th Circuit denied, holding that the record in this case shows that the government is, quote, fighting MS-13, end quote. And so Ms. Sanchez-Castro hadn't shown that the Salvadoran government acquiesces to MS-13. An unfortunately fairly straightforward MS-13-based denial after the huge MS-13-based win out of the Fourth Circuit last week. All she wrote, folks. And that is Sanchez-Castro, the U.S. Attorney General. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. 
and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review and send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.